0: This is Women Authors of Achievement Podcast, episode 58, with guest Rhiannon White. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Darius Savorova, and welcome to the show. Today's guest is full of courage and curiosity. In fact, her professional journey has been all about following a thread of deep curiosity for people trying to understand their motivations and choices they make. Rhiannon White is the chief product officer at Clue, a period and cycle tracking app. Rhiannon speaks to women on a weekly basis across the globe and gets to hear about their pain and experiences, which are still routinely dismissed today. She strongly believes that everyone should have the information and knowledge to make their own choices. Today, we talk about Rhiannon's captivating journey in politics, her path into product and, of course, the future of femtech. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or any other streaming platform of your choice. Enjoy today's episode. Rhiannon, it's a pleasure to welcome and you today in the studio and to meet you in person. And it was about time that we get to speak about Femtech on WA Podcast. I haven't covered that topic yet. And also, there is maybe one more confession I have to make: is that I just love welcoming Kiwis on the stu- in the studio on the podcast. So, and you're the second one. <laughs> Welcome!
1: Oh, no, thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to be here. And I, I have to say, um, there are many WA fangirls at Clue. When uh, when I mentioned to a few colleagues that I was coming here, there was general excitement in the office. I
0: love it. That's so good to hear. Well, you know that this is this is why I knew um, Clue is you know and. Someone representing Clue should be on the podcast, so it was about timing, and here we are today. You've mentioned to me that your professional journey has been all about following a thread of deep curiosity about people, why they do certain things in certain ways. Where does that curiosity come from?
1: This is a very good question. And when you mentioned this earlier, I thought, oh gosh, I I haven't really reflected on this um, deeply before, so we might have to do this live and see where we see where, where we, we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I come from a very—I grew up in a very small rural part of New Zealand, four thousand people uh, in the in the area that that I grew up in. Very beautiful, very small. I don't know if if you've ever spent time in a small town. There's a lot of social. You've, you've got to figure things out pretty quickly in a, in a small town, right? Because there's a lot of expectations and kind of social pressure, right? Like if you say the wrong thing to the wrong person, it's a big deal. It's not like Berlin where you can just walk down the street, you get it wrong, you move on. Like, it's no big deal. But it's a big deal in a small place. And everybody
0: knows each other, right? Everybody
1: knows each other. When I was growing up, my, my parents are very interested in other people. They are very curious and caring and deeply empathetic people and w- who have always been strong role models for me around this. And also, my mother is a recovering addict, and so uh, children of addicts tend to grow up with extraordinarily honed people skills. It's, mm-hmm. it's a... It's just something you do because you have to be really alert to what's going on around you and how that, how that works and both very aware that um, internal and external there can be a difference in how things are going and so you, you're kind of thinking constantly about people, what people are doing, why they're doing it, um, you know what you do and don't. So my, my parents were wonderful, wonderful people. When I was five, my daughter is five and she's brilliant at all sorts of things. She does not know where the dope plants are because there are no dope plants (laughs) and she does not know what the spotting knives look like. And when I was five, I I knew what those things were. And so I think I developed quite a a heightened sense of people quite early on.
0: Really? Okay, interesting. Mm -hmm. But do you want do you want to help your daughter to develop that or you let her flow like in her own ways? And
1: I think they need to. Yeah, they need to flow in their own ways. I'm very... The thing I love about children that I find so fascinating about having kids is that, you know, when you meet another adult, like we've met tonight and we will get to know each other a little bit as much as anyone can ever get to know someone else. But, but we know who we are, right? But when you're meeting a child when they're born and when they grow up, they you're getting to know who they are as a person, but they're also getting to know who they are at the same time. They don't know. You don't know. <laughs> it's like this beautiful process of discovery. You know, anything – they don't know what they're going to love. I don't know what they're going to love. I don't know what's going to send them into a complete meltdown. They don't know what's going to send them into a meltdown. And that is really amazing. And then they they are so – you know, they're not ours. They just come through us, and, and we are just fortunate enough to kind of be around them and, and, and shepherd them through through those early years. We're new to Berlin. It took us a long time to find an apartment in Berlin, as everybody does. Everybody. <laughs> we were so excited and happy to move into our new apartment. We move into our new apartment, and in the first week, we have noise complaints about the kids. And oh. I know, right? It's a very. I feel like this is the very German thing, uh, because on on the one hand, obviously we have noise complaints about the children, but then we learn that children's noise is not noise legally. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know all this stuff. Anyway, so the the neighbors came to see us, to ask us to please be a bit quieter. And the empathy that my children showed for them, you know, my, my husband and I were feeling terrible and a bit sort of, you know, angry and maybe a little defensive, but also feeling bad about this. And the children yeah. just were so open and just so straight went to them and said, oh, we're so sorry, you know, what's going on? And like were, they were really curious about them and what's going on for them and why was that noise a problem for them? Nothing that I've ever I mean, I've never had a conversation with them about anything. Fascinating. This. I know, and it was so, I was very proud of them for that. But I—that's I, nothing to do with me. That's right. you know, about them and who they
0: are. Amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. I just love how we're starting this. Here you are, a very curious person with very empathetic children. <laughs> so also, you know, very interesting, right? So when I read your title and I was like, oh, so, so who she is, you are chief product officer at Clue. And then I thought to myself, um, amazing. I'm going to have like a very product focused person who has this like very typical maybe product background. Um, but then as I read more and more about you, there is a completely different story unfolds. And you worked quite a bit in communications and also worked with the opposition party, for the opposition party, actually in New Zealand. And I was like, amazing. Like, okay. I was like, hold on. Like, before we talk about product, first, what was this chapter of your life? Because this is where you spent about four years working in political marketing and was even doing national campaign. So can you like... Tell me more about that time because I'm all ears.
1: It was a very intense time and very – first off, it was very intense because when I was approached about the role, uh, the party who was in opposition at the time was and still is a centre-right party. And I, I mentioned that I grew up with very happy-ish parents living in a very rural, happy uh, environment, um, <laughs> a bunch of drugs and free love. And, <laughs> um, and you know, those folks are not very centre-right. <laughs> right, so, right, And so my initial reaction was, oh, what I don't know and the the person who approached me said uh, this is to the point about curiosity said take the meeting take the meeting go learn see you might be surprised don't form a judgment before talking So okay yeah okay she's right so I I went and and I I started meeting with the folks there and I I realized my my preconceptions and the judgments that I had formed were quite wrong about about the folks who were doing this work and what they were looking to do and And I I realized that there was an opportunity to really learn and really accelerate my learning and really contribute. And so I was fortunate enough to be offered a role um, working on, we didn't call it marketing because in politics, the word marketing, now it's more accepted, but this was a long time ago, we we called it direct communications. I see, uh, campaigning. Yeah, pretty much the same thing. (laughs) So for my friends and family, for me to take that role was very confronting Mm -hmm. uh, and it was very confronting experience for me to have this huge wave of disapproval coming from all these people who I loved and had spent all my life around. So contradictive. Yeah, contradictory. yeah. Wow. it was very intense. And I was very surprised because, of course, I had always thought that, you know, so many of these people who I loved and admired and still love and admire today, I, the things I loved and admire about them are their, their uh, acceptance and compassion and uh, openness to other people. And so suddenly to not be having that was quite a shock. Mm hmm. And it it made me realize and think about what judgments or what ideas do I hold as just self-evident that perhaps I'm really not seeing that there's another point of view. I'm really not seeing that there's another way of looking at things and that other people might quite genuinely feel and think differently with all the goodwill in the world. They might just think and feel differently. But it's interesting that despite that
0: disagreement of your, maybe judgment of your family, many people would maybe say, "Mm, I will step back actually. And I don't feel like this is a bit discomforting. I would like to still have a support of my family and friends circle. Nonetheless, you were like, you know what, guys, this is my life. I have to experience this.
1: I sort of made me more interested and and made (laughs) me think, well, this is really... Fascinating. Yeah, what have I... And it was like being... You know, I, I've always been really, really, really focused on. In fact, this was the the role where my love of user research first started. Politics is a an interesting and curious working environment, and one of the areas there's a huge amount of hierarchy involved, and there's a huge amount of control of information. And I mean, you know, it's it's not a it's not a normal working environment. Uh, and the one of the areas that is very important, but that was not at that point in time seen as very important, was doing the direct, the qualitative research. So I said, well, I'll put my hand up for that. I'd, I'd love to do that. And so I spent years uh, going to focus groups and doing qualitative research with voters and hearing from people all over New Zealand about their views, their their thoughts, what, what, was, what mattered to them. And it was a real, it was such a good reminder every week, week in, week out, that the things that you know, we we might have talked about or been talking about on the on the evening news were not mm-hmm. necessarily actually what mattered in people's lives. Mm-hmm. And and this actually is very relevant in product because in product you can get a lot of noise about we must do this or we must do that or this is a great idea or that's great, you know, lots and lots and lots of urgency and noise and this, 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 this. And it can be very difficult and it's very hard for product managers to kind of stay true to, well, no, this is the thing that we're doing and why. Mm-hmm. And, and politics is very similar. Just constant noise from the media about X, Y, Z issue. Mm-hmm. But actually voters and real people care about a limited range of things that are really important to their lives and to their children and to their families. And that's what we needed to focus on, not get distracted by.
0: And it seems like you did a good job because you won the election. So you were doing something right.
1: I, I mean, <laughs> the leader and the politicians did a great job. And, and I think we were a good team to support right. and, to, and to help make that happen. I mean, it's a it's a big team. It's a big team effort. A national campaign It's very fascinating from a logistics point of view. The machinery of campaigns, even in a small country like New Zealand, there's a, there's a huge amount that goes into it. And that was, I find those things very interesting. You know, it's fascinating. Two. But so there were like those also the big guiding principles that you, that shaped
0: you, right, during that period, and that kind of helped you to make some choices and decisions onwards. What did you realize over those years working there?
1: Well, I realized uh, the first realization I had was um, within probably. A month of being there. It was my first role leading people, and I felt this click inside in my spirit, uh, which sounds like a really strange thing to say. Uh, but I, I have always had quite a lot of energy and been able to run quite far and fast with, with a new role or a new project or a new, new piece of work. But eventually, I, I run out of energy on my own. Mm-hmm. But the, the gestalt of the team, you can just keep going and going and going. And you can do so much more when you're together and you're a team. And leading a team, the opportunity to support them to just go further, it was amazing. It was so, for me, I felt not only a rush of energy, but like a lightness, like a burden had been lifted from me. It's not, I didn't have to do all this stuff. We can do this stuff and right. we can have this impact together. So that was really amazing and really confirmed for me that I loved that path and that I wanted to be in, in the in the path of, of managing and leading people. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And actually, you know, politics is an amazing place to work for that because you see every style of leadership from the guy who was the leader and who became the prime minister as an extraordinarily good people leader through mm. to your caricature of the crazy politician <laughs> who, like, shouts at you and throws a stapler that actually happened Jeez. one day <laughs> in office. Oh. Yeah, and, and, you know, really um, – really amazing opportunity to observe clo- firsthand all the different styles that you could possibly have of leadership and and people who think very deeply about this because they have to or they you hope that they do and, and I was fortunate in the folks that I was working for for did so I, I thought a lot about that which which was good and then I also spent a lot of time thinking about mm, okay this is quite interesting because we're political staffers we're here to support these people and we're here to achieve an outcome but it's not I started to realize it's, I mean, and you actually literally serve at the pleasure of the principal, as they are referred to. And it's, I'm just going to say it, it's all derived power. It's actually very like the role women have had historically in sort of running countries and that it's not yours you know, as a political staffer, no matter how senior you are, the authority and the impact that you have and the ability to make decisions does not come from you. It comes from your relationship to the principal. It's all derived. And there is this this great episode of The West Wing. I don't know if you've ever seen The West Wing. It's an old but great political show and uh, ran for a long time in the U.S. And there's a there's a moment in it where. The guy who plays the president says to one of his political staff, and we used to watch it obsessively because we were all political staffers, and this show was very glamorous, and our lives were not very glamorous. <laughs> and the, the the guy who plays the president says to one of his um, staffers, uh, "The difference between you and me is that you want to be the guy the guy relies on, and I want to be the guy." And I, for me, I watched it and I felt like this this electric current went, went down my spine because you know, amongst the staffers, it's all about who is the guy the guy relies on the most. You know, who is the closest to the leader. I didn't want to be closest to the leader. I didn't want to be part of that push and shove. And I wanted to be the guy, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to be a politician. I admire the folks who do that. I think it's necessary for representative democracy, which I still think is the best model that we have. um, Or as Churchill said, the least worst, but I don't, I don't want to do that. I want other people to do it, but I, whatever I do want to do, I I don't, I want to be in the middle of it. You know, I want to have some impact and some ability to, to have a point of view and to advance things. And so it was pretty clear well, I wasn't going to be able to do that, doing what you know, doing it in politics. And so mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, if I would like to be the guy, for want of a better term, <laughs> um, how am I going to do that? And okay, my career to date is not going to get me there, right? I have a very controversial view, which upsets many colleagues who I've worked with who I love and value greatly. <laughs> and I think there are these pink collar ghetto jobs in the world. And I, I think that there are, Various disciplines that women in particular end up in and you can advance very quickly. I was 27 and I was leading a team working for the leader of the opposition. You know, I the team was getting bit like it was pretty se- senior, pretty young, right? Exactly. Very promising, right? Very promising. But nobody gets made CEO from comms roles. Hmm. And uh, same with HR. Nobody gets made CEO from HR. Same with PR. Nobody gets made CEO from PR. <laughs> project management. Nobody gets made CEO from project management. And these are all disciplines dominated by women, right? Where women go into right. them quickly, they advance quickly. There is a limit there. If you want to be the guy, if you want to be the CEO, I don't know that I want to be a CEO, but I didn't want that route close to me. Mm. And it was close to me if I didn't have a different direction in my career.
0: Interesting that you realize that. I mean, it's not it's not necessarily bad. I think, I think the perspective you're looking at is that you wanted to have to be the guy, right? To have, to make the decisions. And you looked at it perspective from, okay, what qualifications I need to have to be there and kind of like making the countdown from there. But it's not necessary if someone is really good at what they're doing, they're not going to be the CEO, they can be the CMO, right? So there are many opportunities, nonetheless, I think in the tech world, in the corporate world, but maybe that's second the best. But again, it's not fair to say that. I mean...
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a controversial view. It is, <laughs> and, and it is. I,
0: but this is, I mean, I like that you were very honest, and this was your view, right? Because there's many people who might feel like, hey, I really, I, I really feel I deserve this, and I have a purpose because I'm really good at this.
1: It's not enough. Yeah, and that's the that's the terrible hard truth about these things. I I spent I, I did a lot of research. I looked at. I mm-hmm. thought, okay, well, if I if I'd like to be really senior. I love this leadership thing. I think maybe I'm not so terrible. Of course, I'm not greatest, but maybe I'm not so terrible. Maybe I could have a crack. How do women get to really senior positions? What what do they do? Like, What are the roles that they have? And so I did a lot of research. I spent ages looking at and finding senior female leaders across various types of businesses and and looking at their profiles. They didn't come from any of this, but they didn't come from the discipline. So where did they come from? They came from marketing proper or they came from finance or they came from product they came from the heart of the business, whatever the business was. Mm. And that was the thing. I could see that they they were close to the heart of whatever it is that, that, whatever it is that created value for that business, they were on top of and they understood and they, and they were really close to that. And so that's what I needed to do. I needed to figure out how to get closer to the heart of the business. And so it seemed clear to me that um, obviously politics was going to be not forever. It was mm-hmm. very intellectually stimulating and satisfying and amazing to work on a campaign. And it was a dead end for me. And that was clear. Wow.
0: Wow. Interesting. So tell me about the time that you started. I mean, you did the research. You started to build the interest. But when was that moment where you thought, let me venture into product? Here it is. That's my opportunity.
1: So first I moved from comms into direct comms and then into marketing with the using the word, uh, which I did in in London uh, at the BBC. Uh, I had a fantastic few years there. It's a brilliant brilliant place and when I while I was working there I was I was working on a, a product called iPlayer which is a bit like Netflix for the BBC it's a beautiful product and I was the head of marketing on iPlayer great brand you know and I had uh, I had everything you could want as a marketer's dream I had a brilliant product I had a brilliant brand I had all the tv airtime I could want to to do beautiful ads we had numbers that just kept going up and I sat there looking at it going okay it's the product that's driving this it's not my it's not my campaigns, <laughs> you know. I because I, I, I was really close to the research because I love being close to users right. and or the audience as they call them in the BBC. And I thought, it's not, it's the product. This is what's because it's about a relationship that 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 audience has with that product and with the content inside that product. So I, I started working more and more closely with the product teams and trying to understand what they were doing and how they did things and why and how I could support. And the guy who ran all of who ran all of that particular division when I was there is this amazing product leader uh, from the US and he and his uh, wife decided to move back to to the bay area and he said to me and he got a, he was the, he had gotten a role as the cpo at Shazam and he said to me as we were chatting about oh you should come and join my product team and you know the voice in the head in your head i i, I don't know maybe you I have a voice in my head that says, you are not, insert word there, enough. <laughs> right? right? And so the voice that says things like, you're not technical enough or you're not strategic enough or you're not smart enough or you're not, enough, or, you're not hardworking enough or whatever, or that stupid annoying voice, that, that voice was there. And for once I managed to just like, just tell not just shut up. Don't say anything out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I didn't say anything out loud. And I said, instead of, oh, I'm not, ten-, you know, whatever it is, I said, oh, oh, why do you think that might be a good idea? And so I let him convince himself that because right. he then, I mean, he was
0: obviously convinced. So. I don't know,
1: but he, he, he then built a reason why I, I could or should make the move to product. And so I, I interviewed with, uh, with the company and, and they were gracious enough to take a chance on me. And so I moved into, um, a, into that product team at, at Shazam and then moved out to California uh, to do that. And how were those days? Well... <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, the here Q-A-X-A-D. you are where you wanted to be there. Like, this is sounds like a dream. I mean, it's like a new, fresh start of a new journey.
1: It, it was a dream. And I remember standing, when we had moved to London, I remember standing, it was a, a February, and I remember standing in the airport in San Francisco, because when you fly to Europe from New Zealand, you can go via Asia or via the US, and standing in the airport in San Francisco on this February day, and it was crystal blue skies, and it was warm outside. You could see it was warm. And I knew what London in February was like, because I had lived in Europe before, thinking, oh, I wish we could just get off here. And go, yeah, but that was just not just not possible, right? Uh, and so we were going to that place that years before I'd stood there thinking this would be amazing. And look, bluntly, it was, it was really, really hard. It was a very, very big lift. N- new country, new domain, new company, new boss, new product. It was a lot to do all at once. And mm-hmm. the first 13 months, I was miserable. I worked six days a week, 12 hours a day. Uh, you know when we moved to California uh, my husband and I would watch Buffy reruns on Sundays but that was it like yeah, the rest of the time I was at work and it was just I made every mistake that you can make as a product manager I mean every mistake but
0: that means you kind of like self-taught yourself you didn't have any you know additional courses or classes or you had to do some training
1: no I mean products are very on the job thing right. I, I know there's a, there's a lot now of training but it's still practice. It's a practical discipline, mm. I think. I mean, I love it deeply because it's a discipline that requires thinking and doing, and it's the conjunction that matters. It's the and. Um, that's why I love it. It's neither one nor the. You spend too long on one, you're you're not doing your job. But it's it's super practical. And I, I mean, I tried. You know, I read Marty Kagan's book and then cried because I knew I was not that pro- product manager. I went to the I went to the you know the the seminars in the Valley led by Kleiner Perkins about what it takes to be a top one percent product manager. And I was like, that's. Ooh. Crikey, I'm not doing that. I mean, it was very, it was very hard, and I was fortunate to work with some really great. Um, you know that that man who, all thanks to him, took that chance on me. He's a brilliant product leader, and I worked with a couple of other product leaders who I'm still in touch with, who were way better than me, but were very generous and always took their were very welcoming to me as a peer. Mm. Uh, and learned a lot, but mostly learned by getting things wrong and then <laughs> trying again, and then getting it wrong and trying and again. During that,
0: you know, thirteen terrible, difficult months, <laughs> miserable months, as you as you said earlier, was it was it still your passion for product, and understanding that kind of like what it skills, what it takes, interest in in that kind of competency of being a product owner, or was it the people that supported and surrounded and mentored you?
1: It was a, a lot of just sticking to it was kind of pride. Like I've got to figure this out. I'm clearly not doing a good job. I've got to figure out how to do a good job. And I didn't. And I knew I was. I didn't feel like I was doing a good job. There were some things I was doing well, but I knew I wasn't doing the full job well. I felt overwhelmed, and uh, like most of the time, everybody was complaining at me about all the things that needed. You know, because the, the truth is, most product is saying no to things, and actually. The hardest part and the most important part of strategy is saying no to things. It's, it's all the same. It's all the same lesson. I didn't. F- I felt constantly unsure on the inside about what right did I have to say no? And, and I would have to say no, but how would I know? And it's because I'd lost my weight because in that, that overwhelm and that first trying to do it and just trying to stay on top of everything, I was just trying to stay on top of everything. I was very internally focused. Mm. I was not connected to users and to user research. Very, only very lightly. And then coming out of that phase, I started to, as I started to kind of get on top of the mechanics and then realize, oh, I had some feedback from one of my colleagues there, which was harsh, but really accurate. Uh, and he said, he's a really amazing product leader, leader who I, I, you know, every couple of years, I still talk to and say, can I get your advice on XYZ? And he said, look, you're, you're, you're really senior and you were senior before you came into product and you need to be bringing insight you, mm. you can't just be getting the stuff done you need to bring insight and it was kind of it always stings a little to hear that you're not doing something but then I thought oh he, he's right and that's what I did in marketing and that's what made me mm. strong in marketing and so I um, I realized I needed to get back to that and so starting to get back to that helped me to start to feel more almost like the ground, on which I stood, started to solidify. And then also, you know, we shipped some stuff and I saw some impact. And I was very fortunate that I worked on an area of the business that actually for the business model long term was not well suited, which was also a very good lesson. But uh, because it was directly connected to revenue, I could measure the impact. And so we could say, okay, we shipped that thing. We made some money. Oh, that's really exciting and satisfying.
0: So that was the moment where you started to build the loft, right? Because from those difficult months, there was a moment where you were like, well, I'm getting it. I'm on the right track.
1: Yeah, it, it. I mean, it, it, I don't know that there was any one moment where I thought I'm getting on the one trait. It was more like a kind of a slow, you know, the dawn comes quite slowly and you realize it's not as dark and you can see your way more clearly and then it starts to look quite bright and then you start to think, oh, no, I feel really good. This is actually starting to look great. I love it. I lo- yeah. I'm, you know, I,
0: I love that story. And I think that's how usually things are starting. They're not from the start. They're not perfectly, you know, polished. You know, it takes time. It takes uh, diligence. some kind of like building that discipline around something mm. to get to that certain excellence that starts to kind of move you forward, help you flow like through the process. is fascinating. And I cannot agree more on that. I think I continuously do those experiments on myself, trying those different things and challenging and not just um, staying within the comfort zone. And usually in those processes, it always takes a time until you feel like, Oh, now I get it. Now it's good. Like now it's really good, right? Yeah, but it's not
1: never immediate. Never. No, and often the most worthwhile things are hard things, and yeah. and we have to work for them. And and the work is partially what makes it worthwhile, right? And one of the again controversial views I have with and and um, points of contention I often have with product managers and my teams is you can't bypass the work. You have to do the work. And and there are things in being a product manager that 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 is the work. You can't automate them. You can't come up with a better process that makes a better, like you have to do the work. You have to do the work around the insight. You have to understand what your users need and and what problem you're solving for them. You have to do the work around your business model. You have to understand how the numbers work in your business and where the point of value is and what is the value chain and how does that work. And you have to do the work around communications. You can't automate that away. You have to communicate and, and make sure you're doing that connective tissue work, which, you know, if you don't do that, you're completely failing as a product manager. And so, and I think there's a lot of talk about product and what is the craft, but this is the craft and this is what we should take pride in and we should do the work. You mm-hmm. know, you can't you can't bypass it. There are no shortcuts. You have to do the work.
0: Like in anything good in life, right? Mm-hmm. So tell me about Clue because before we, you know, talk about like what is the future of Clue and what are you guys building, I wanted to understand how did you find yourself um, coming to Berlin, <laughs> coming to Clue, I mean, working for a period and a cycle tracking app. Here in Germany, and I also know that there's also like a personal story connected to it. So maybe we take it like step by step. But I'm all ears.
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we go back to California. <laughs> so when we were uh, in California, my husband and I decided it was time for us to try for a family. Uh, we both come from large families, and we had just we've been together a long time by that point, and we just assumed children would be in our future. Turns out <laughs> that was uh, not necessarily a correct assumption. Um, so you know, we did everything. I, we we're very healthy, very active. I came off the pill. I thought this would be really straightforward, and it just well, and month after month after month after month, I was not getting pregnant, and I, I started to have this. It's just it's incredible how deeply fertility and our our ideas about identity are these really deeply anchored thoughts and feelings and ideas and expectations that that we can and that I held that I did not even realise that I held. And that became this huge I mean, for me it was very difficult and I, th- I think this is true for other people going through it. I spoken to a lot of them through glue and through other things um, when when going through fertility struggles it just it's so heartbreaking and lonely and isolating i remember standing i mean going to new york with we had an office in new york i used to go to new york every six weeks sounds great but <laughs> it wasn't always that great in reality and one time my husband came with me and um i remember he was sightseeing around the city and I had had a bruising meeting with the CEO and then I went into the bathroom and I got my period into standing there in the bathroom stall and crying because it was just yet another month where mm. I had failed to get pregnant and where this thing that was, you know, this central part of our hopes and dreams for our lives together as a couple and as a family, you know, one of the reasons I changed my name when we got married was so that my children and, and my husband and I would all have the same name it was the primary reason why I changed my name. None of it was happening, and it just kept not happening over and over again, uh, and so it was very, um, it was very hard. And so, God bless America and their liberal approach to fertility treatment, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because we were in the U.S. in California, which is they. I got shunted off to the REI clinic and um, went through REI processes and got lucky to get. We we did get pregnant on the drug rounds, but the process of doing that made me realize with this like crazy almost. I was embarrassed that I was in my mid-30s and I was, you know, I had this great job and we'd been married for a long time. I'd traveled the world. You know, I was theoretically a competent adult, paid all my own bills, you know, uh, and I, I didn't have the most basic idea, actually, about how to get pregnant. This sounds crazy, right? Like, we all think you know how you get pregnant, ha ha, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Right. I didn't actually know how you get pregnant. I, I didn't really know. And that was one of the reasons why we weren't getting pregnant. And so going through this this process, when you go through an REI or a fertility treatment process, they, they obsessively track and monitor your cycle. And the data that comes out, and if you love data, which is a product person and someone who's curious about people, I loved all the data. I mean, I hated what was happening. <laughs> I spent a lot of time crying in the car after appointments, but I loved the data and starting to understand and, and realize what was going on. And I kept having these thoughts around, if I hadn't known this earlier, would I be going through this experience? Like, Could I have hmm. actually done this better? And the data was very liberating, A, because it just gave me insight into what was happening, but also B, it's one of these processes where I felt, and, and often people going through fertility struggles, feel deeply out of control. You think it's something that you, something that you want, and actually human conception is quite a tricky business. And You don't have all that much control over it.
0: But it's interesting how perspective changes because until like in the 20s, everyone is scared to get pregnant. After 30s, everyone wants to get pregnant. And it's like, what's what's happening there?
1: Right, (laughs) yeah. And so I'd never really thought about it. I'd just been like, Oh, and I sort of thought you just get pregnant at any point. You, you can't get pregnant at any point in your cycle. <laughs> I've tried. <laughs> you really can't. And, and so that that tracking and that um, access to data changed our lives. Right. I mean we we have our we have our oldest son as a result of that. And and that I mean there's very little that's um, more life changing than than children. Uh, and then so when it was when we um, knew that we wanted to try for a second, and, and I was over I was thirty seven when I had my first. Child, yeah, thirty-seven. By the time I had him, because we had quite a while trying, so I was no spring chicken biologically. Uh, they write on your chart, gravita geriatrics, Ooh. <laughs> yeah, which means that you're, you know, an old pregnancy. Uh, and so I knew we needed to move quickly to try and have the next one. And so I, I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to track and follow my data. You're like
0: taking out all the piles of paper and like all my data and like, let's do this now.
1: <laughs> so I, and using apps and, and really closely tracking and monitoring. And we got pregnant second time without intervention and then did the same thing. And I had my third baby without any intervention when I was 40. So it got pregnant and had him while I was 40. And so uh, You know, genuinely tracking and being close to the data about my own body and what was happening genuinely changed our lives and changed the course of our marriage and of our family. I mean, it created our family. And so for me, Clue and and the the mission around um, helping people with that data and helping them understand their own body so they can make their own choices. They might not want to have children because that's just as transformative to be able to control that choice. They might want to understand what's going on for them with their symptoms or their physicality
0: Mm -hmm. or whatever is going on. I, I... so what so what do people see in Clue basically when they open the app? What happens?
1: So when they open the app, the first thing they see is what we call the cycle view. So it's a it's a cycle that shows where where the user is at on their cycle. And the thing that's I love about that is that it really instantly it really instantly orients you and what's going on for your body. And and people will say things like, Oh, I felt like I was going crazy, and then I open the app and I thought it's just hormones. Or Like it really helps orient you and what and what's happening and, and where you're at. And so you can instantly figure out and situate the the impact that's happening on you in your life right and so um to you know I, I find that a really exciting proposition to work on and to be able to help people with i speak to users every week and just every week such a privilege to be able to hear from people right about what they're these like immensely personal and profound things in our lives and that are essentially invisible the rest of the time right like like normal life outside of Clue Land, um, we don't talk about these things. But our reproductive health is indivisible from our overall health. Like it's not like there's a like a wall between our uterus and the rest of us. Like all it's all connected. And this like ability to hear from people around what's going on for them and the impact and 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 what they do or don't want to do is it's just endlessly interesting. It feels like this huge privilege to be able to get this glimpse into people's lives.
0: It's fascinating. And I mean, thank you for sharing, uh, Ryan, and also your personal story. I think it's so inspiring because basically, that, um, as I understood, kind of made you start thinking about it. And that also partially was the reason why you accepted the offer and fly into Berlin because you were like, this is it.
1: I mean, when I was approached, um, told that there was a role of Clue, I was like, please, please, can I be here? <laughs> please, can they consider me? Um, uh, it was just a uh, – and I – you know, Clue is a really special place. Every every person that I, I met all along the way was just so kind and thoughtful and, and caring and genuinely committed. And I just – you know, I almost sort of had this creeping excitement but also creeping dread because I kept saying to my husband – I. They're really great. I think I really want this. I, this means we're going to need to move to Germany, right? <laughs> and he's. It seems like he's like kind of like supporting and flying in he, everywhere with you. Right? He's amazing. I mean, he is. He's full time with our children and has been since our first child was born. Um, so, like literally nothing that I do would be possible without him. And and so it's a. I was going to say a partnership. It's not really true. Like he does all the real work. You know, I get to go to the office and have a grand old time, and he does all the does all the heavy lifting to mean that we can. Move forward as a family, fascinating. Um, here you are in Berlin, actually,
0: right? Already for half a year, seven months, yeah, seven, half a year, yeah, That's half a year, <laughs> yeah. But tell me, what are some of the things that um, you've joined Clue, and what are some of the products uh, you want to start building there? Is there any way that you see Clue growing as a platform, as an
1: app? Absolutely, anyone from Clue listening, I'm talking long term. I'm not dictating any roadmaps.
0: <laughs> Everyone is like freaking out, like, oh, geez, is this <laughs> happening until like um, 2022?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this year we've taken a uh, actually a really exciting leap forward in that we have released a product called Clue Conceive, which is, you can probably tell from the name, very directly around helping people conceive and helping people who actually had a very similar experience to what I had around trying to conceive for the first time actually don't know as well as we think we do the the process and so just helping with that that information that access to insight and information so that they can they can hopefully have an easier and less stressful time of it in terms of conceiving that product is proving very successful and um and people are adopting it very very quickly it's it's kind of amazing how quickly it's growing, uh, and seem it seems to be really helping, which is which is wonderful. We are about to, um, we're actually, about to ship a. We've done a complete rewrite. My, my colleague, who's the CTO, and, and the whole engineering team—they're just incredible what they've done. And the new product is going is a lot is a lot faster and snappier, and we can build and iterate a lot more quickly. So for me, there's this is huge, exciting jumps that we'll be able to take over the next while. You know, one of the critical things about. There are some very core jobs to be done for users of a product like Clue. And actually, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're very human needs that are quite fundamental. And so, you know, the, the first one is obviously around um, accuracy and trust. Like we, People need to be able to trust us and accuracy is the key driver of, of trust. Second is around actually um, orientation. So we people want to be able to orient themselves mm-hmm. in their journey and, and that's what we can help with. The third is this um, this really core job around reassurance. So there is this, strong need I think because we so few of us get any good education about any of this that we just don't know am I normal am I okay and people literally will say this to you am I normal am I okay Mm. in fact it's such a strong need I have had people in interviews tell me their story and then say is that normal am I normal Mm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah you know but this need to be And reassurance, how we become reassured is through connection because humans are deeply, I mean, we are connection seeking people that is as as a species, that's what we do. Uh, And so the best way to do that is to create connection for folks. And and we have an enormous amount of amazing content, which helps people um, drive connection in terms of connected to their problem. And we have a big opportunity over the next while to start driving that connection to each other and to other people going through the similar thing that they're going through. So building a kind of community, right? Something. I don't mm. know what that looks like yet. And and the team will discover what that looks like mm-hmm. through being really connected to our users and around what their needs are. And that is a clear opportunity and exciting opportunity, I think, for us to help that. Because there's so much loneliness involved in a lot of these things, you know, because of the amount of taboos and Kind of silence around a lot of these things that people suffer under that shouldn't be there. It should, you know, but it is. There's a lot of loneliness, and so if we can help create that connection to each other and to and to yes, to the content, to the questions, that helps people realize oh, I'm I'm not alone and I am normal and I'm okay, or maybe I'm not okay and this is not normal and I need to go see a doctor. Which great, go see a doctor, right? Like that's so that's what we'd like yeah. to do. And then I also really this thread about data and insight and empowering people with that. We provide a huge amount of data in the app at the moment. You kind of have to work for it to, to find the patterns and to find, you know, m- people do that. And I would like to do that much better. I think we have a huge opportunity. That so so you, the people,
0: the users, they need to work for this to get data and understand themselves. So they have to
1: contribute. Yeah. I mean, people are always going to put data, bad data right. in, bad data out. And have to do data be in.
0: consistent with it, right?
1: Yeah. And we we have an opportunity to do more of, at the moment, we show them their data we don't necessarily interpret it for them or visualize it or like really bring it to life Mm -hmm. and and different people read data in different ways. And so we need to recognize that and surface it in different ways for them so that we can really help them make sense of what does that data mean and what's going on for them. So these are areas that I'm really excited about. And then of course there are, I mean, you know, I, I mentioned that the thing that's really fascinating about our reproductive health is it's with us for, for our whole lives. And so there are more life stages and more areas where we can contribute to that I'd like us to keep pushing into
0: 100%. And that's also something I wanted to ask you about is, in general, Femtech, it's such exciting and vividly growing area. There's a lot of uh, innovation happening. Uh, where do you think it's going? And what's the future of Femtech? Like, what are we going to see more and more available for people out there?
1: I think data and insight will be at the heart of it because there is such a shocking lack of data around women's health. Uh, And it's just such an underserved, for so long, there has been so little information and data around women's health and women's bodies. I mean, truly appalling the level or or the lack of, you know, I mean, things like people don't even really understand what the clitoris is, you know, from an anatomical point of view, like this stuff that's so fundamental to female anatomy and female well-being that's just not, there's just not enough data and information on it.
0: Now I'm coming actually to the last question of our conversation because I think we can keep on, you know, exploring this further because this is, this topic requires the attention and there's so many depths and perspectives here that I could, you know, have more and more questions. But that should help. uh, Maybe that should come in in another season and the further conversation when there will be a deep dive. But the last question is always about women author of achievement that my guest has in mind. And it's role model or a person that my guest would like to give a spotlight to highlight on the episode. And uh, Rhiannon, I was thinking, who could have been for you?
1: Yeah. And I love this question. And I love that you asked this of folks. Uh, I, I think for me, I've been very fortunate to work and observe and learn from many, many amazing uh, women and, and men and, and across my career. And i, I, I I know that will continue and for me the as soon as you ask that question i immediately think of my mother my wonderful mother who i love so deeply and who loves me so deeply it's interesting we talked earlier about connection with people and about how curiosity about people and uh, i guess kind of empathy and insight into people is is something that drives me and i think is also what's helped me do well at, at, at work at various points in time And I'm fortunate because I work in tech and so I get rewarded for that, right? I have a good, stable uh, job that supports my family and me. My mother is just amazing, next level at this. So she uh, has just recently stopped working in community mental health. So she's a community mental health worker in New Zealand. We have a system where community mental health workers are the people who, when it's midnight on Thursday and it's raining and someone's having a psychotic break and they're threatening themselves or someone else, um, it's with violence. It's the community mental health worker who goes in and who – literally just with talking with them, wow. talks them down. It's a huge responsibility. Right? My mother is amazing at this. She's the kind of person who walks into that type of environment and can talk people down and into a place of safety and keep get them safe and get their family safe and then get them into the care that they need. This is not at all recognized or rewarded by society, right? Like she, she got paid very, very little. I mean, barely the minimum wage to do this. Of course, it's completely underfunded everywhere. Mental health is underfunded in every single country everywhere. Uh, of course, everybody burns out as a result and they can't do it forever. And yet I, I look at her and I just think, I admire what you are so skilled. This is a deep, profound skill that this deep, profound empathy and compassion and love that she's able to bring to people, that means that in moments of profound crisis, they are able to come back. And she is able to help like create moments of safety in the world. And it just doesn't get recognized. And so for me, I think if I could ever be half of that, I will be an amazing person in this world. So and I mentioned that, you know, she's had a very she's had a long, tough journey. You know, she's spent she is a recovering addict. Um, she's an incredible, you know, we're all multiple we're all kind of deep, complicated, multiple human beings. We all have lots of multiple layers. And I just find her I think she's an inspirational person. And and so, I mean, for me, I always look to her as a role model. And actually, I must say, also, my father, I mean, they divorced when I was very young and they still, it's very, it's very, they're not from New Zealand originally, but it's a very kind of Kiwi thing. You live near each other and it's all very fun, you know. Yeah. And my father is one of these people who, one of the things I, I think is best about myself and that I think people appreciate about me is that I'm generally a very positive person. Mm-hmm. Sometimes my teams find it a bit annoying how relentlessly positive I can be, <laughs> but but that's entirely from him. You know, he's, mm. the, he's the kind of guy who always has a good thing to say about everybody. You know, when people say they never have a, you know, he never has a bad word to say about anybody. And I really, I admire that. And I strive to do the same because it just brings there's just so much negativity in the world and it's really, you never feel dragged down or bummed out when you're with him.
0: You know, and I felt that because when we had this email exchange and when I received some of your notes in responses to some of my questions, I already could feel that positivity through how you wrote about things and it energized me. It made me so excited to meet you in person because I thought, first of all, this person really puts so much effort into writing and answering and thinking through this But also like you see how proactive and and thorough and curious you are. And I was like, wow, this is going to be very interesting. And and to your mother, I mean, it's a unique story. And I Mm -hmm. think, as you say, connecting, but also that level of understanding, because it's not just a connecting with a person and transmitting your own personality onto someone, but it's mirroring that person and trying to deeply kind of understand what triggers that, because Mm -hmm. It's not you who needs to say certain things and be strong but it's you have to say what exactly what this person needs to hear mm. and it's very difficult to know especially when they're at this state of stress and crisis so i mean that's a superwoman skill probably <laughs>
1: Right, and she's just so. How can you read that? How, I know. How can and, you know? And because I come from kind of a different, I've had a different life story or life experience. I kind of go, this is amazing. You know, you could, like, you could make a career out of that. Like, you could, you should get published. You should do this. You should do that. And she's like, no, I just want to. I just want to give, and I just want to do some good in my community. She doesn't need the. The recognition, right? Yeah. I once asked when I worked, when I was a political staffer, I asked um, one of the politicians who had been in the previous government for the same party, and we used to. He was very kind to me. We used to meet for lunch about once a quarter, and, and uh, I said to him, "But why? Because the, the party really wanted lots more women candidates, but they just didn't have them." And I remember saying, "And this is true for many parties." I was like, "Why? What's the what's holding back?" And he paused and he said, "Well, I think to be a politician, you need two things. You need to genuinely care about your community." I think for all that people feel about it, actually, actually, you do have to genuinely care. And two, you have to also want to be recognized for genuinely caring about your community. <laughs> and he said, and the problem is that many, many, many women care about the community and want to do good things in the community. They just don't care about the recognition. It's not important to wow. them that, that their picture is in the paper doing that thing for the community. And I was like, it's true, right? You think about all the amazing women who do so much kind of in that fabric backbone work and my mother is one of these people, right? She she just doesn't just yeah. doesn't matter to her about the recognition. Well,
0: there's more intrinsic, you know, values that the person is looking for, or they're driven intrinsically, which is also quite respective and this makes them happy and feeling purposeful. Then this is what it is. That's what they need, right? Brianna, thank you for these conversations. And to be honest, I absolutely loved uh, having this conversation with you. I have a lot of thoughts and. In my mind, I'm I'm going through some thoughts and ideas that I think after I have to chat with you because I'm like, well, I can relate to that. Well, <laughs> I heard about that experience. And thank you for sharing your story. And I think that different perspective on how people also might consider working in product or how people might consider the whole area of femtech or how people might consider like journey of growth and development there's that the heart is this curiosity, empathy, interest, but also strong work and discipline that is at heart to create what you love and to be so fulfilled. And at least that was, I think, a takeaway from me, actually.
1: Well, thank you so much for this time and for your amazing listening skills. <laughs> it's, very, it's a real privilege to get a chance to, to be heard. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at WAA.Berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening and we're looking forward to being back soon.